0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 RFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Johan Hari. He joined me to talk about his latest book, Lost Connections, uncovering the real causes of depression and the unexpected solutions. If this conversation brings up any questions or concerns for you, please contact your medical practitioner and or lifeline on 13 11 14. And you are tuned to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins, and I have with me in the studio, and he, he comes all the way from the UK, but he has been around a lot recently and that is Johan Hari. Hi there.
1: I'm really chuffed to be with you, Amy. Thank you. It's
0: great to have you. And uh, it's great to have you in the studio, first of all, because that means we can have a really in-depth chat about this book because it is um, really a very meaty topic and there's a lot of research that you reference and talk about and a lot of ideas that are known, as you say, in the scientific community but are not so well known in the general population and that's the point of this book is to highlight um, in such a great way and there's many narratives and stories that you use to highlight these um, scientific findings about the real causes of depression and what are the things that society can do, individuals can do to to change that and to kind of, I guess, hopefully reduce what's become an endemic really across our Western society and also even in Eastern societies. So thank you for writing this book. Oh, thank you so much.
1: I'm really glad you put it that way because there were these kind of two mysteries that were really hanging over me that made me decide to write it. The first is I'm 39 years old. Every year that I've been alive, depression and anxiety have increased across the Western world. And I wanted to understand why, and partly because it was because of a mystery related to myself. When I was a teenager, I'd gone to my doctor and I'd explained that I had this feeling like pain was leaking out of me. I couldn't control it or regulate it I felt quite ashamed of it and my doctor told me a story that I now realise was really oversimplified he told me a totally biological story he said oh there's a chemical called serotonin in people's brains makes them feel good some people are clearly knacking it you're clearly customers some people are clearly lacking it you're clearly one of them um, all you need to solve this, is these drugs, you're going to feel fine. So he gave me an antidepressant called Ciroxate. And I did feel a really significant boost. But within a couple of months, this feeling of pain started to come back. So I went back, he gave me a higher dose. Again, I felt better. Again, the feeling of pain came back. I thought there must be something wrong with me. And I carried on jacking it up until, in the end, I was taking the maximum possible dose for 13 years, at the end of which I was still really depressed. So I ended up going on this big journey for this this book, Lost Connections, over... 40,000 miles. I wanted to interview the leading experts in the world about what causes depression and anxiety and what solves them. But also I wanted to sit with people who had really different perspectives from a, an Amish village in Indiana, because the Amish have really low levels of depression, to a, a city in Brazil that banned advertising to see if that would improve mental health, to a lab in Baltimore where they were giving people magic mushrooms to see if that would make them feel better. And I learned loads of things that I know we're going to get to, but
0: yeah.
1: I think the core of what I learned is, you know, I learned that there's scientific evidence for nine different causes of depression and anxiety. Two of them are biological, that's very real, but most of them are factors in the way we live. And I realised, until I went to my doctor when I was when I was a teenager, I thought my depression was all in my head, meaning I was just being weak, I needed to man up, and then for the next 13 years, I thought my depression was all in my head, meaning it was just a chemical imbalance in my brain. But what I learned is the causes of depression and anxiety are largely not in our heads. They're mostly factors in the way we're living. And once we understand that, that opens up very different kinds of solutions.
0: Mm. What I found particularly interesting is you found a really close connection and relationship between depression and anxiety. So when you're talking about depression in this book, you often say depression and anxiety because um, they're almost comorbidities in some ways. A lot of people have both of them and they're also interconnected. Could you share with us just how related they are?
1: Yeah, I I was kind of surprised by this. So I started by interviewing this guy called Professor Robert Collenberg, He's done a lot of research on on both. And yeah, now they don't really fund, with the exception of phobias, which are a bit different, separate phobias, which are a particular kind of anxiety, which do have different causes and different solutions. But actually it kind of surprised me, they don't really fund separate research, because it turns out pretty much everything that causes an increase in depression causes an increase in anxiety and pretty much everything that causes a reduction in depression causes a reduction in anxiety. I began to think of them as they're a bit like um, cover versions of the same song by very different bands. So if like, you know, depression is like a cover version by a kind of emo band, uh, you know, anxiety is a cover version by Slipknot or something. But it's, you know, but they're essentially the, the, the underlying factors are the same.
0: Yes, and a lot of the medications that doctors prescribe do affect depression and anxiety or are intended to have an effect on both. And you do mention this, this whole story about serotonin and this chemical imbalance and certainly it's important to mention up front that it does work or some of these drugs work a bit for some people. So it's certainly not that they're entirely ineffective in treating depression, but they are not the cure-all necessarily for depression. It's certainly, they're not so effective that we've managed to completely eradicate depression.
1: I think you've just put that really well, Amy, and I think that we need to have a nuanced conversation about chemical antidepressants exactly in in line with what you were just saying. One thing that was really shocking to me was to realise that story my doctor told me that it was about serotonin, that's not true right? So the leading expert at Princeton Professor Andrew Skull says it's deeply misleading and unscientific to say depression is just caused by low serotonin. One of the leading experts in Europe, Dr David Healy, says you can't even say that story's been discredited because it was never credited. There was never a time when half of the people in the field believed that. The reason we were told that story is because it was basically good advertising copy for the pharmaceutical companies it doesn't mean there's no no value in these drugs they give a they give a bit of a boost to some people and that has real value but they're not solving the problem for most people and the best long-term research on chemical antidepressants shows most people do become depressed again on them uh, which doesn't mean they don't give some relief but you know there was someone who really helped me to think about this a bit differently i went to interview this south african psychiatrist called derek summerfield who happened to be in Cambodia when chemical antidepressants were first introduced in that country. And the local Cambodian doctors didn't know what these drugs were, so they, so he explained. And they said to him, oh, we don't need them, we've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? He thought they were going to talk about some kind of like herbal remedy or something, right? Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who one day stood on a landmine and got his leg blown off. So, They gave him an artificial leg and he went back to work in the rice fields. But apparently, it's really painful to work underwater when you've got an artificial limb. Mm. I'm guessing it was pretty traumatic for obvious reasons. Guy starts to cry all day, doesn't want to get out of bed, he developed classic depression. So they said to Derek, So we gave him an antidepressant, and he said, Well, what? They explained that they went and sat with him, they listened to him, they realized that his pain made sense, that it wasn't some internal malfunction. They figured if they bought him a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't be in this position that was traumatising him so much. So they bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his crying stopped. Within a month, his depression cleared up. They said to Derek, so that cow, that was an antidepressant. That's what you mean, right? Now, if you've been raised to think about depression the way we have, that sounds like a joke. I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. He gave me a cow, right? (laughs) Sounds absurd. But what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively... Is what the World Health Organisation, the leading medical body in the world, has been trying to tell us for years. If you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not crazy, you're not a machine with broken parts, you're a human being with unmet needs. And what you need is love and support to get those deeper needs. met. Everyone listening to your show, Amy, knows that they have natural physical needs, right? They need food, they need water, they need shelter, they need clean air. If I took them away from you, you'd be in real trouble real fast. There's equally strong evidence that human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. Our culture is good at lots of things. I'm glad to be alive today, but we've been getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying Mm. psychological needs. So in a sense, what my book Lost Connections is about is about what's the cow for that? What's the cow for the problems that are causing our depression and anxiety?
0: Yes, and as you uh, mentioned at the start of our interview, you found that there are about nine of these areas that are causes, the underlying causes of depression. And you say that, as you just mentioned, two of those are biological, but then we go into the psychological and the sociological factors that mean that people develop depression or have increased depression or anxiety and you go through in really interesting um, stories to highlight these areas of research that have been done and to to talk about them. And I think some of the ones that resonated with me the most were areas around losing connection to meaningful work Mm -hmm. and losing connection to our values. And I think that's something that you don't really realise And, and a lot of people, perhaps we call them midlife crises but a lot of people would be um, you know going through their lives in jobs that aren't particularly meaningful to them don't particularly fulfill their needs of making a difference perhaps making a real contribution and I think that's one of the things that I've noticed has become more and more of an issue and that you highlight in your research and in others' research that has become a huge issue at the moment across the world. And there was one particular poll I'm thinking of that surveyed people <laughs> from many countries. Yeah, could you tell us about that that survey?
1: Yeah, you've gone to such an important point, Amy, that the, so like you, I noticed that loads of the people I know who are depressed and anxious, it focuses around their work. So I start to look at, well, how do people feel about this? Gallup did this massive opinion poll study, including here in Australia, figure out how do people feel about their work? What they found is 13% of us, 1-3% like our work most of the time. 63% of us, what they called sleep working, so you don't like it, you don't hate it, you just kind of tolerate it. 24% of us hate our jobs, right? was like, wow, that means... 87% 87% of people don't like the thing they're doing most of their waking lives. What- Oh, that, it really threw me back. And I, so I started to look at, could this be having some effect on our mental health, right? So I discovered there was an incredible Australian who who made a real breakthrough on this in the 1970s, a man called Professor Michael Marmot. He discovered the key factor that causes depression at work, it's not the only one, but the biggest one, is if you go to work tomorrow and you are controlled, so you have low or no autonomy, you are much more likely to become depressed and anxious. You're actually much more likely to die of a stress-related heart attack. And at first when I learned all this from Professor Marmot, I actually misunderstood what he was saying. I thought he was saying, okay, you got this elite 13% who get to have jobs they like, They're going to be fine. The rest of us are condemned to the misery, right? I thought about my dad, who's a bus driver. I thought about my, you know, my brother, who's a delivery guy. I thought about my grandmother, whose job was to clean toilets. And I thought, well, hang on a minute. Are you saying all these people? And he said, no, yeah, and you don't understand. It's not the work that makes you depressed. It's being controlled at work. It turns out there is an antidepressant, a very different kind for that. Now, some people are going to hear me describe what what that is. And they're going to think, well, I can't do that. And it's true that the way our society is organised at the moment most people can't do that, but this is an argument for a structural change. Mm. In Baltimore, I went to meet a person called Meredith Keogh. Meredith used to go to bed every Sunday night, just sick with anxiety, right? She had an office job. As she would tell you, it wasn't the worst office job in the world. She wasn't being bullied or harassed, but it was monotonous. It was controlled. She couldn't bear the thought this was going to be the next 40 years of her life. So one day with her husband, Josh, she did this quite bold thing. Josh had worked in bike stores since he was a teenager which is, you know, insecure, controlled work. They um, And one day, him and his colleagues were kind of sitting there and they thought, what does our boss actually do, right? They liked mm. their boss, he wasn't a particularly bad guy, but they, they were like, well, we seem to fix all the bikes. He seems to make all the money, right? So they decided they were gonna set up a bike store with Meredith that worked on a different principle. So the place they worked before was a corporation, right? So top down, you do like an army, you do what the guy at the top tells you. Um, they decided to, to set up a business that runs in a very different way. It's a democratic cooperative, right? So um, there is no boss. They take the decisions together by voting. They share out the good tasks and the crappy tasks, and no one gets stuck with the crappy tasks. They, uh, they share out the profits. And... One of the things that was so fascinating spending time at their business, it's called Baltimore Bicycle Works, was how many of them talked about having been depressed and anxious before, but now completely in line with Professor Marmot's findings, they were no longer depressed and anxious. And important to say, it's not like they quit their jobs fixing bikes and went off to become Beyonce's backing singers, right? <laughs> yeah. They, they fixed bikes before they fixed bikes. Now, mm. what changed is we gave them, they were given control over their work. And, you know, there's no reason why Imagine how many people you know who are depressed and anxious about their work, who'd feel really different if they knew that tomorrow they were going to a workplace that they controlled with their colleagues, where they set the priorities, where if there has to be a boss, he's elected by them and accountable to them. That's a very different way of spending yeah. your waking life, right? One that's much more compatible with our need to create meaning and purpose out of our work. That's a structure, there's no reason why we should be organising our society so most people are stuck in work that depresses them and makes them feel terrible.
0: Yes. And you have highlighted that there is a great deal of uh, inequality in the hierarchies that we have so much so that the CEOs and the bosses that we have are making hundreds of times more pay than we are necessarily the the overall working class or middle class even who are in these large organisations, for example, where you see these CEOs taking home, you know, big bonuses, have large incentives. And it's interesting that uh, that particular study you're talking about by Michael that he discovered that those who were more senior in the civil service were less stressed, had less depression, uh, because they had that level of power and control and ability to have a say and direct the work and the workflow in the areas that they th- thought were priorities. And then the area, the people who were lower, as you went down in the ranks, suffered more and more distress, were more and more depressed. And you see that across a range of the studies that you highlight. And there's another one. Around around bonobos and their hierarchy and also the other one which also looked at primates and and the kind of really rigid hierarchies that they have and you talk about how, you know, they had really rigid hierarchies, but we actually do have but could change our hierarchies, as you've shown with that bicycle example. We have the flexibility to make changes and those changes that we've had in our society have been going on for years and years and if you look at things like neoliberalism, they've only increased the level of uh, inequality and the ingrained hierarchies that we now see, that those who have power and those who don't have power. Do you think... That this kind of escalation and embedding of hierarchies that you've seen across these studies can be changed uh, for the better, and what what are the ways beyond our own areas, like our own idea to start our own business? What are the other ways that we can change or challenge these hierarchies or structures?
1: Totally. So I think you're totally right to talk about neoliberalism. It's not. It's like we were saying. Everyone has natural psychological needs. And there are all sorts of systems that don't meet people's needs. I think neoliberalism is one of them. And as we become more neoliberal, we become more depressed. This is true all over the all over the world. But I think part of that is related to, um, neoliberalism is this, this, this you know, kind of hyper-capitalism is this story that says, every individual is just kind of rationally maximizing their economic benefits. And that's how we go through life. And that's how the whole society should be designed to encourage people to think of themselves that way. One of the things that's done is that's produced the loneliest society there's ever been. There's a study that asks Americans, how many close friends do you have who you could call on in a crisis? When they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer is none, right? There are more people who have no one to turn to when things go wrong than any other option. And um, I've been thinking about this a lot lately because one of the people who taught me so much about it, an amazing man called Professor John Cassiopo at the University of Chicago actually just died, But tragically, but... um, He said to me, why are we alive, right? Amy? why do you and I exist? We exist in part for one reason. Our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing. They weren't bigger than the animals they took down. They weren't faster than the animals they took down, but they were much better at banding together into groups and cooperating. Just like bees evolved to need a hive, humans evolved to need a tribe. And we are the first humans ever to disband our tribes. right? Australia is actually off the scale in terms of loneliness. It's the, just behind the United States mm. in international detail, which is why actually this is the, one of the key reasons, I think, why this is the country in the world that per capita takes the most antidepressants after Iceland. Um, and... and And I was just looking at what, when you think about loneliness, well, what's the antidepressant for that? Anything that reduces depression, I think, should be regarded as an antidepressant, not just just a drug. And I learned there is one. One of the heroes of my book, Lost Connections, is an amazing doctor called Sam Everington. He's a doctor in East London, and uh, a, a very poor part of East London, where I actually lived for a long time, though. Sadly, Sam was never my doctor, but, so Sam was a GP. He has loads of patients coming to him with depression and anxiety and he feels really uncomfortable because he knew he'd learned in his medical training it's much more complex than just the idea there's a chemical imbalance in their brains. But he was told just tell people that, that it's too sophisticated to have anything else and just give them drugs, right? Like me, he's not opposed to those drugs, he thinks they have some value, but he could just see it wasn't solving the problem for most of them. He decided to pioneer a different approach. One day a woman came to him called Lisa Cunningham, who'd been shut away, I got to know her quite well, she'd been shut away in her home for seven years with crippling depression and anxiety. Sam said to Lisa, don't worry, I'll keep giving you the drugs, but I'm also going to prescribe something else. I'm going to prescribe for you to take part in a group. There was an area behind the doctor's surgery that uh, I don't think I can say the name on the radio. It's known as Dog Crap Alley. Not quite, there's something else, but you're pretty close. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it backed onto a park, it gives you a sense of what it was like. Um, and Sam said to Lisa, What I want you to do is to turn up a couple of times a week with a group of other depressed and anxious people. I'm going to come and support you, and we're going to turn this into something beautiful. First meeting they had, Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety. But a couple of things happened. The first is Lisa realized they, they had something to talk about that wasn't how bad they felt, right? They decided they were going to learn gardening. They, in, in a city, Slunders didn't know anything about gardening. They started to put their fingers in the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the seasons. And um, there's a lot of evidence that exposure to the natural world is a really powerful antidepressant, reminds you that you're small and the world is big. Um, another thing that happened is, They started to form a tribe. They started, and they did what human beings do when we form tribes. They started to solve each other's problems. Um, You know, they started to look after each other. Mm. The way Lisa put it to me, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. It's a study in Norway of a very similar program that's part of a growing body of evidence, found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. I think for kind of obvious reason, right? It was dealing with the reasons why they were so depressed and anxious in the first place. And this is really what my book, Lost Connections, is about. How we can deal with these deep causes of depression and anxiety. Because a society of really lonely people who are told that life is about buying crap and that's how you make yourself feel better, who are told that, you know, life is about screaming at each other through screens or showing off through screens, that's going to be a society with a... A depression and anxiety crisis for a very good reason, right? That's not that's not who we are. That's not what we need. And if you then, on top of that, tell people, well, the reason you feel so bad is just because there's some biological problem in your brain. There are real biological factors that I talk about in Lost Connections. They're important to talk about. But if we say it's just biological, what that's saying to people is your pain doesn't mean anything. It just just makes no sense. Mm. That's what I effectively I was told when I was so young and I went for help. That's not true. We have these feelings for a reason. They are signals. They are telling us that something's gone wrong with the way we live. And if we, instead of pathologizing those signals and insulting them, we start to listen to them and honor them, then we can begin to make the changes that we need to make that will actually reduce these terrible and painful feelings.
0: Exactly. And we will get to those biological factors in a moment, but I want to bring us to um, one of the other areas of disconnection, which ties in with what you're just talking about when it comes to community versus the individual. That is disconnection from meaningful values because you talk about junk values and this idea of materialism and individualism and it certainly does come out in a range of areas in this book but uh, you do say that uh, we, let me just find the quote because it's a a really particularly good one. Junk food is distorting our bodies. Junk values are distorting our minds. Materialism is KFC for the soul. Um, And (laughs) you do talk about (laughs) KFC.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I basically lived on KFC for like 10 years. (laughs) And I had the very low point in 2009 when I went to my local KFC and uh, it was Christmas Eve lunchtime and I gave my order and uh, the guy behind the counter said, oh, Johan, I'm really glad you're here. I was like, all right, and he went back and he, and he came back with every member of staff and a massive Christmas card in which they'd written to our best customer. My, one of the reasons my heart sank is I realised that wasn't even the fried chicken shop I went to the most. But um, <laughs> but no, so we all know that how that works, right? Junk yeah. food appeals to the part of us that needs food, but it, but it but actually it, it, it makes you sick, right? It's not, it doesn't give you nutrition. What's interesting is a kind of similar thing has happened to our values, right? For thousands of years, philosophers have said, if you think life is about money and status and how you look to other people, you're gonna feel like crap, right? That's not an exact quote from Confucius, but that is the gist of what he said, right? And, um, but what's interesting is no one had scientifically investigated this until an incredible man called Professor Tim Kasser in Illinois started to do a load of research on it. And I interviewed him a lot for the book. And and what, what he found is the more you think life is about money and how you look to other people and showing off, like on Instagram, for example, the more you're going to feel terrible. That correlates quite, clo- quite closely, actually, significantly increases depression. But and also, what he showed really importantly is as a culture, we've become much more driven by those factors, by these junk values. The more advertising you're exposed to, the more you believe in it. More 18 month old children know the McDonald's M than, reckon, than know their own last name, right? That's how deeply we're immersed in this from the moment we're born. But what, but also he did this really interesting experiment that was just about getting people together in groups to talk about, just meeting a couple of times a week, talk about what do you actually think is important in life, right? When you get people in, together in groups, actually quite quickly they're like, They don't say what I really need in life is Nike sneakers and, you know, uh, another car, right? Mm. Most people that falls away quite quickly. When you talk about what you find your deeper values are and you build towards it, what he showed is you can really significantly reduce those junk values. These insights are just below. So it's almost a cliche to tell people, look, everyone listening knows you're not going to lie on your deathbed and think about all the things you bought right? You're going to lie on your deathbed and think about moments of meaning and connection. Yeah. But but as Professor Kasser put it to me, we live in a machine that's designed to get us to neglect those insights. We, we live in an economy that actually is dependent on making you feel you're inadequate unless you buy all this... Crap! Right, right. Yeah. the the uh, and making you feel inadequate, um, and and making you feel that if you if you're not spending, you're you're not you're not. It's a, like a depression and anxiety generating machine. Now we need to regulate that machine. I mean, I think we should just get rid of great big chunks of it, but but also Professor Cast talks, and I, I go through in lost connections about how we can build up our defences against that, which is a way of building up our defences against depression and anxiety
0: indeed and the one of the things i I found really um useful as a framework to to think about was intrinsic versus extrinsic values and goals because the intrinsic values are the ones that are meaningful to us that do fill us with joy that feed our soul and uh, certainly i think it was even was it tim who went and moved out into the country yeah yeah Yeah, and and he really disconnected from the outside world in a way he still um he worked part-time, his wife worked part-time. They had this farm, they had a TV they rarely used. But he, you say, was very quick to say he did, doesn't regret it and he actually thinks it's one of the greatest things that he's done. And, and they don't have you know a huge income coming in because they've got a combined full-time income. But that's just something that I found particularly interesting is when someone makes a, a radical change like that, that they themselves, even working in a field like this and having known all the facts and the evidence, found it to to be, you know, so fulfilling and so um, meaningful.
1: You know, Amy, I had this really sad experience yesterday. I did this phone-in here in Melbourne with a great radio host. And there was this really nice, decent, good psychiatrist, a really admirable man, and uh, who had a much more sophisticated understanding than a lot of psychiatrists. And this guy phoned in, who's a little bit younger than me, 37, so more or less my age, And since he was 13, he'd been taking chemical antidepressants. And he said, oh, they keep giving me more and more antidepressants. They keep giving me new ones. And this nice, good psychiatrist said, well, yeah, sometimes people need a change. And he meant a change in the drugs. Mm. And what I want to say, and and this guy did know this, I'm not attacking him personally, but says, Jesus, this guy doesn't need a change in his drugs and needs a change in his life. He needs help to change his life, right? And that's not about saying to him, hey buddy, it's your issue to solve it and far from it. He needs social change, he needs... And I just thought, God, it's it's so saddening to me that, that we have such a narrow understanding of our distress. It's not that there may not be, there may be some value for drugs in this guy's life but the idea that you've got this guy who since he was a teenager has just been a very young teenager since an adolescent mm. just been endlessly drugged and then just, he kept saying, and now they are me saying for the anti-anxiety you know they were giving more and more drugs and I just thought Jesus this is a sign of how wrong we've gone as a culture that that's the first and primary response and even really good psychiatrists when they hear it don't say wait wait something's gone wrong here right
0: Yes and it's one of the things um, that you talk about is that these drugs do have a huge range of side effects and you can end up taking drugs to counteract the side effects that you're experiencing um, with these particularly for example SSRIs but you also yeah. say that there are studies that show that these particular drugs don't necessarily have uh, great impact for teenagers in particular and can be quite negative in terms of their development. These are formative years for any person
1: but it does... Yeah totally I mean I, so I, for me personally I mean I was in my kind of later teens when I started taking them I put on a huge amount of weight like 70% of men who, who take them it affected my sexual functioning which obviously depresses you a bit more um, and I think Particularly, it, I really worry about that for young adolescents, given that 70% of men affects their sexual functioning. What effect does that have on the development of your sexuality? If from such a young age, it's it's being kind of tampered with in that way. Um, and yeah, the, the leading medical journal in Britain, The Lancet, published a study showing that that almost all the commercially available antidepressants just don't work for teenagers. This was established in a big court case in the United States, uh, where uh, one of the big pharmaceutical companies had to make a massive payout, because they'd systematically misinformed the public about the marketing of antidepressants for teenagers. So that's right. I mean, actually, here in Australia, Mm -hmm. it's an especially shocking figure here in Australia. One thousand children in Australia, according to a report in The Australian, between the ages of two and six are being given chemical antidepressants. That is outrageous Um, i mean the figures here i have to say figures here in australia are really shocking you know one in ten. i stress the issue is not the drugs the issue is the underlying distress that's the biggest problem here of course and those people and we have a need for antidepressants but Mm. it's just we should understand an antidepressant like in line with that cow story to mean all sorts of things some of which should be chemical antidepressants most of which should be a much broader range of, of interventions but in australia i mean the i mean this is The top of the world's league table for depression apart from Iceland where there's like five people and one of them is Bjork so you know um the so I really think we this is the debate we need to be having in Australia and I think Australians are really receptive to this when you hear it they I think most people here it's not like the US where people have been so heavily indoctrinated that you know that it takes quite a long time of talking to Americans to get them to see what I'm saying I feel like Australians absolutely intuitively get over there's something not right about what we've been. And people can see, if, if it was just a chemical problem that just needed chemical solutions, it wouldn't be the case that the last 30 years, every year we've increased chemical antidepressant prescriptions and every year depression and anxiety have continued to increase. Clearly there's something missing in the picture that we've been talking about up to now.
0: There is. And I think the reason perhaps why Australians are understanding this is because we do have ingrained in our culture this sense of a collective that we Mm. need to support each other, particularly those that are worse off. We've got our Medicare system, which is meant to support everyone. We've had um, social security supporting everyone in America. That is certainly a controversial topic. Topic, um, that, you know, government should be intervening um, in order to support a collective. And certainly the free world, which is uh, America essentially, has been built upon, I guess, individual freedoms. Whereas here in Australia, although we are getting more and more Americanized, we do have some level of a sense of the fair go, a sense that we need to support each other and, and have stronger links to community. And whenever I've had these discussions with other um, thinkers, certainly everyone has said, yes, absolutely, I believe in in having fostering a greater sense of community and collective rather than the self, which is certainly what comes out very strongly in your book.
1: You know, it's so interesting. When you when you say that, I think about one of the people I met for for this book, Lost Connections, who most led to a change in how I thought in my own life, and I'm kind of embarrassed to say it in a way, is this person called Dr. Brett Ford, who's a, uh, an academic at Berkeley, an amazing person, and she did this really interesting research. It's kind of simple. They looked at, if you, Amy, decided you were going to spend two hours a day from now on trying to be happier, would you actually become happier? And they did this research in four countries. The United States, Russia, China, and Japan. And what they found was at first, weird, in the United States, if you try to make yourself happier, you do not become happier. But in the other countries, if you try to make yourself happier, you do. And they're like, well, what's going on? So they looked in more detail. What they discovered was in the US, if you try to make yourself happier, generally you do something for yourself. You buy something, you work harder, you try to get a promotion, you show off on Instagram, whatever. In the other countries, if you try to make yourself happier, generally you do something for someone else. So for your friends, your family, your community, your country. And so they have, the Americans have an instinctively individualist idea of happiness. And the Eastern countries about had an instinctively collectivist sense of what happiness is. Obviously it's exceptions in both countries, but. And in a sense, that, that individualist theory of happiness just doesn't work. That's not who we are, That's, we're not that species, right? In fact, if we had been that species, we would have died out on the savannas of Africa. We wouldn't have been able to survive, right? We are an instinctively collective species, and we are the first humans to tell this kind of individualistic story about who we can be. You can do. It. Like, think about even like, a friend of mine, a little while ago, went through a terrible tragedy in her life, and I looked on her Facebook wall, and some of the memes that people had put to cheer her up, genuinely meaning it would cheer her up, didn't realise. So one of them just said, the only person who can help you is you. And this person I'm posting that, I'm sure didn't mean it as a nice thought that I'm Mm, gonna say something really nice to encourage Nat. But it's like, wait, that's, firstly, that's literally the opposite of the truth, right? That's not true. But, but actually you can see how deep that individualism has become, that we actually even say it as like a kind of feel good, pick me up to people who've gone through tragedies. It's, mm. it's, it's so deep in the culture. Even our shampoo bottles say, because you're worth it, not because we're worth it,
0: right? Exactly. It's um, almost a twisted form of empowerment. We think we're empowering people to take charge of their lives. Where, um, And this does bring me to one of the quotes which I think highlights this from um, the Indian philosopher Krishnamurti mm. where he says, it is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society. So the system that we're in is creating a lot of our responses and we are responding to that system. So we can't put blame upon individuals and we can't say that only they themselves can pull themselves out of depression because that's not true either. We can't put blame and and say as you said that it's a weakness, a personal weakness which it is not to have depression or or anxiety.
1: I'm so glad you put it that way Amy because it's very interesting the reaction to my book Lost Connections Um, you know I did this again I did a TV thing the other day again with really admirable, all all the people on it were really admirable and all of them you know really care about people with depression and and the Conversation kept sliding back to, well, what should individuals do, right? What what should individuals do? And then it and, and came, came back to, well what individuals do they should drug themselves right and that's like the default slide in the culture and I don't criticise any of those people that's we've been very heavily propagandised for the last 30 years to think in these terms right and it's not and I stress again there's some value in all of those things and of course there's something individuals can do and there's some individual yes. uh, responsibility of course and of course drugs do have some benefit to some people but I, I really appreciate that you've you got the, the wider perspective and it's interesting, if you look it can sound a bit strange in the abstract so I'll give a very concrete example of a social intervention that's an incredible antidepressant. In Canada in the 1970s, they did this experiment. The Canadian government chose a town at random. Uh, It's a town called Dauphin, it's in Manitoba. And they said to a whole lot of people in this town, from now on, we're gonna give you the equivalent of 16,000 US dollars in today's money. uh, A year, nothing you have to do in return for it. And there's nothing you can do that means we're going to take it away. They just want to figure out if you give people a baseline of security and freedom, what happens? And then they were monitored very carefully by this academic called Dr. Evelyn Forger, who I interviewed. Loads of interesting things happened. People spent more time with their kids. People studied more. Nobody stopped working, but a lot of people turned down crappy jobs. So overall work standards improved. But biggest thing that happened... Massive fall in mental health problems. In fact, mental health problems that were so severe, people had to be shut away and hospitalised fell by 9% in just three years, right? Really massive fall. And, you know, it totally fits with what we're saying, right? Um, When you give people a baseline of security and a bit of freedom to change their lives in the ways that at some level they know they need to change their lives, turns out a lot of them feel a lot better, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a funny thing about these insights that we've been talking about, right? Because at once, they're both quite revolutionary and kind of banal and obvious, right? Yeah. What I'm trying to do with Lost Connections is kind of restore to people their instinctive sense. If you, if you said to our grandmothers, hey, Gran, do you think being lonely, having a meaningless job, um, you know, feeling really financially insecure will make you more likely to be depressed? My nan would look me and said, well, No shit, Sherlock, right? Exactly. Uh, And yet, what what we've done is we've been told a story for so long now that gets us to neglect the things we instinctively and intuitively know about depression and anxiety. And what I'm trying to do in my book, Lost Connections, in line with, you know, the leading medical body in the world, the World Health Organization and their advice, is to explain to people... If you're depressed, if you're anxious, don't let people tell you it's because you're crazy or there's some chemically broken thing in your head. There are factors going on, and we haven't talked about some of the psychological factors, things like Mm. childhood trauma, which can massively increase this as well. But you know, that you feel this way for a reason and these reasons are perfectly understandable and if we drill down into them we can find the reasons and more importantly together we can find the solutions and i would just say to anyone who's depressed and anxious you are surrounded by people who feel the same who have the same longing for reconnection you're not a freak you're not weird actually you're reacting in a perfectly sensible way to not having your needs met and together we can get those needs met
0: Yes, and uh, it does tie into one of the disconnections and one of the areas for reconnection, which which is to have a hopeful and or secure future. Mm. And that also involves control. And uh, you do highlight one of the studies of First Nations people in Canada, um, where Professor Michael Chandler looked into suicide rates in particular areas and identified that communities with the highest control over their destiny, over the community and how it worked, And these people had been put into reservations, had been significantly discriminated against over many, many years. But those who had the highest control had the lowest suicide rates. So there is a great deal of importance around making sure that people have a sense of hope and a sense of future direction. And certainly, as you've said with depression, that whenever you see a depressed person, often they can't see beyond today or this week. And often if you're in an area or a time of distress, you can think, well, this is only short-lived. I can see there's light at the end of the tunnel, but often in these situations, people can't. So it's certainly one of the things which strikes me as being uh, particularly critical. But let's just head now to the biological area because I do want to cover it off. Mm. It is really important. But as you say, the psychological causes are really important and can, you can read them all in um, the book, Lost, Lost Can I just Connection. say,
1: you're so good at summarising my arguments. Are they actually send you out? <laughs> you know, like David Bowie used to have like an actor who would go and pretend to be him at various gigs. Yeah, I'm going to yeah. send you out to pitch, pitch, <laughs> to sell my book. Sorry, go on. We
0: look a little Explain bit different, but that's <laughs> fine. No, I can lend you my lipstick and we can um, close the gap. Uh, but there are causes eight and nine in yeah. your book which you put together and that's because you say there's a real role for biology and for genes and the, the two that um, are really clear is neuroplasticity, which is something we've really got to understand only very recently, which is that, and as you say, your brain is constantly changing changing to meet your needs and your environment and the types of skills or things that you need to do in response to your environment. So it prunes the synapses you don't use and it grows the synapses you do use, but it just goes to show it has that level of change that means we're not fixed which yeah, I certainly. found that resonated with me as an existentialist as well um, is because, you know, the core tenet of existentialism is that we can change who we are in a way. No, no one's born a coward. They can act cowardly, but they can, you know, alter how they are in any given situation and their environment certainly shapes them. So I'd really like to hear your thoughts on on these two kind of areas, the neuroplasticity, but also the genetic, because the genetic one also is interesting, but it only goes so far in in explaining depression and it, it is a cause.
1: Yeah, so I think that's that you just put that brilliantly with the neuroplasticity. In terms of genes, so again, everyone knows this with, I don't know, like I find it really easy to put on weight, right? Other people find it really hard to put on weight. You know, some people can eat 10 Big Macs and, uh, you know, not put on any weight. I have to have one Happy Meal and I my chin swell, right? So I have a greater genetic propensity to put on Wait, but equally, there's an interaction with the environment. If I don't eat 10 Big Macs, I'm not going to put on the weight, right? Uh, a similar thing is happening with the genetics of depression I learned from interviewing people about this. Um, so, I, there's this really fascinating man called Professor Absalom Caspi, who did a study in New Zealand. Um, I didn't interview him, but I read a lot about his, his work. Uh, it's one of the most detailed studies of the genetics of, of depression that we have. Uh, and what he found is there is a specific gene called the H5TT gene that uh, increases your sensitivity to depression and anxiety, but what we also found it's really interesting. If you carry that gene, you are more likely to become depressed and anxious. If you become really lonely, or if something traumatic happens to you, if you don't have either of those experiences, you were no more li- and you carried that gene. You were no more likely to become depressed and anxious than someone who didn't carry that gene. So again, that shows us is that genes and brain changes interact with the environment. It's not like the biological causes are separate to everything else, Mm. and they interact with them. So the, the biological causes, the psychological causes, and the social causes of depression come together. And so they're all real. But the danger is what we've done up to now is we've told a very heavily biological story, right? We've basically, almost everyone I know in Australia who's gone to the doctor for depression with depression anxiety has been told a biological story about why they feel the way. Some have been offered a little side dish of psychological explanations, like you can go and see a therapist. And yeah. nobody I've spoken to so far has been told anything about the social causes. That's not a criticism of those individual doctors because, you know... They're very stressed, they're overloaded. We've, you know, as a society, we've only given them one lever to pull, which is chemical antidepressants. And they are confronted with really distressed people and those, and that lever does help some people. So I don't criticise them for pulling it, but mm. as a society, we, and we all know this with most problems, think about uh, car accidents, right? You could just say with car accidents to individuals, you know, you should cross the street more carefully and you should drive more carefully. There wouldn't be no truth in that. But actually what we do much more sensibly is, as a society, we have speed limits, we have seat belts, we have driving tests, we have airbags, we arrest drunk drivers. We have a massive social response to the solution, the problem of car accidents, which reduces the problem hugely. If we just told people, look out for yourself, mate, then we'd have a much bigger problem. I'm arguing in Lost Connections that we need to have, and and the World Health Organization argues, we need to have something similar when it comes to depression and anxiety, because there are such deep social causes of depression and anxiety. We need to have a deep social response to it as well.
0: Yes. And I'd just like to close out this conversation with something that is really used as an argument for the biological um, explanation, which is that surely uh, when you say that it's part of someone's biology, it reduces the blame or the stigma on that individual by saying, um, you know, it's solely or largely a chemically based change or alteration in your brain that's causing this feeling, the feelings that you have of distress, of depression and or anxiety. But there are studies that you reference in this book that show it it really isn't quite what we would think in terms of reducing that stigma.
1: Yeah, this surprised me. I used to say exactly what you just said. And to me, of course, if you've been told there's two choices, you're either weak and feeble, or you've got just a problem in your brain. Of course, it's more destigmatizing to. But there's a third option. It reminds me, of, in the 1870s, when you first had gay people self-identifying, they called themselves Uranians in Germany, um, a lot of them, because you, you'd had 2,000 years of gay people being told they're evil, and then you had these these gay people who came along and said, well, we're not evil, we're, we're diseased. And you can see how that would have been a liberation to them, right? Now, if a gay person like me said to you, I'm diseased, you'd be like, mate, you need some help here, you're not diseased, right? Because we now know there's a third option which is neither of those two things and in a similar sort of way it's definitely not that you're morally weak there's some truth in the idea that there's a biological problem but actually there's a much deeper explanation which which i think is much more destigmatizing and as you say there's these interesting experiments that show how much more destigmatizing it is to say to people your pain makes sense Right, it, 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 these people are reacting perfectly sensibly to deep problems, um, and we can solve those problems together. That's to me, that's much more destigmatizing than just saying. I remember this neuroscientist, Mark Lewis, Professor Mark Lewis, saying to me when I was talking about, oh, you know, stigma, and but doesn't the biological explanation help people out of stigma? And he said to me, Johan. No one ever doubted that leprosy and AIDS were biological problems, right? You might have noticed there was a bit of stigma with them, right? And it did kind of knock me back. I was like, oh, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. why? where have we got this idea that saying something is just biological is, is, is you know, the, the, the answer to stigma. The deep answer to stigma is to explain, and also also explain to people, the things that are making some of us depressed and anxious are making most people in this society less fulfilled than they could be. Far from being like a separate species of people with some biological defect, Mm. Um, depressed and anxious people are more like canaries in the coal mine telling us about a problem that's affecting not quite everyone, but most, I think if you go through the nine causes of depression and anxiety that I write about in Lost Connections, you'd struggle to find an Australian who didn't feel at least one of those causes was diminishing their life at least a bit. And actually, if we deal with the factors that are causing depression and anxiety, That will give obviously tremendous relief to depressed and anxious people, but it will also give a lot of relief to a much broader range of people who at the moment are just less happy than they could be.
0: Mm. And as you say, it means that there's greater empathy because this can happen to anyone. And and obviously, most people are worse off in this sense of, of not having their fulfilled lives, personal lives, but also working lives, as we've referenced earlier on, about just how many people, a huge proportion of people, aren't feeling fulfilled at work where they spend most of their time, certainly during the day, doing their activities. So, um, Johan, I just want to finish off by talking about you in particular, because we've talked about everyone else (laughs) um, for a lot of this. And I just want to understand for you what you feel has been most beneficial or enlightening overall when you've gone through this huge journey of researching this book, speaking to so many fantastic, smart individuals. What do you think that you have taken away from it and that you would like others to take away from it?
1: Yeah, there's so many things in the book that are the things I wish I had been told when I was a teenager and I went to my doctor. But I think the, the some of the insights, I mean, there's so many, but some of the insights are kind of really simple. It used to be when I started to feel bad feelings coming to me, if I'm honest, what I would do is try to kind of big myself up. I would try to... Sh- do something clever. Write something clever. Work harder. You know, show off on social media or whatever. And I realise now that's a bit like. Do you remember the? I think it's a Buster Keaton little short film where he's sinking in quicksand, and to get himself out, he reaches down to try to pull out his legs, and of course, he sinks even deeper. I realised it was what I was doing was a bit like that. Now, when I feel those feelings come on me, and I do feel them come st- still sometimes, instead, what I do. So I leave my phone at home, and I go and just try to sit with someone else and just listen to them and be nice to them. We live in such a lonely culture that actually just just showing up and being present with someone is the biggest gift you can give. You know, I, I'm not like Oprah; I can't turn up with a free car, but I can turn up with like my presence and listen. And and really, it's a bit like the lesson of that research that we were talking about that I learned about in California. Just do something for someone else. You know, now I appreciate there people who feel so terrible they, they can't do that and I go through yeah. some things they can do in the book but, 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 but I'm talking about kind of an earlier stage in the development of the depression the more you can reorient yourself outwards towards things that are deeply meaningful and things that help other people the, the, the less depressed you'll become and the more you become trapped in yourself this is one of the reasons why psychedelics seem to give such I go through the scientific evidence about why psychedelics give such relief to people with depression, anxiety in in really large numbers of cases, if you can turn yourself outwards towards meaning and connection and away from being trapped in yourself and a sense of ego, that gives a tremendous amount of relief from depression and anxiety.
0: Mm. That's such a really great way to end this because I think uh, I have really been engaged and present listening to you because I'm so intrigued and fascinated by the things that you've brought up that, as you say, sound quite revolutionary but in in fact, many of them are quite simple and banal and some of them are structural or a lot of them are certainly from a societal perspective but there are, as you say, some individual or personal things that you can do And, and as we've said during this conversation, chemical antidepressants are one aspect of the solution and they work a bit for some people and we're not saying to not take them but certainly that there are a whole range of other causes and things that contribute to depression and anxiety that do need to be looked at that we as a collective need to take action about and I really commend you for highlighting those.
1: Oh, thank, I really appreciate the depth which you read the book and I'm really grateful to you and I will be employing you to be my proxy from now on
0: <laughs> Excellent Cheers Thanks very Thank much. you Johan That was Johan Hari who is the author of Lost Connections Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions and it's published by Bloomsbury and Johan has also written another book about the war on drugs This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne